Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack. We're on episode 38. I am the hack, Hugh Rimminson. Good to have your company, by the way. You're probably sitting at home behind a whole pile of sandbags and uh, and toilet hand paper. wipes. And, and, yeah, they're not sandbags. Look closer. They're toilet paper. <laughs> You've succeeded at Aldi and made an absolute killing. And uh, with me, of course, is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Uh, G'day, Hugh. How are you? I've got the sniffles, actually. I can notice you kind of sort of recoiling back, thinking, why aren't we doing this remotely? Exactly. Um, it's funny because we joked a couple of episodes ago about, uh, you know, you having a, a sort of a cough and a cold, and it was mm. all very funny. Um, you know, or, or we imagined, I imagined it was funny. But it's become a little less funny, this whole coronavirus thing. Um, so well, and, and, I, and let me tell you, I mean, look, you know, I, I assume when people listen back to this in the weeks ahead, I don't have it because I've got no indicator to have it. But having said that, you turn up at a cafe uh, and you do have a slight sniffle, and I tell you what, you notice the pariah status that goes with it uh, when people are looking at you. Because, of course, in fairness to strangers, they don't know. Uh, They don't know what you have or haven't done. They don't know how conscientious or otherwise you as an individual may or may not be. And in some respects, people aren't even necessarily, and no doubt we'll talk about this, that confident yet uh, in the government response, seeing what's going on around the world, wondering whether our government is or isn't doing the right thing. This is one of those rare areas where I'm actually more emboldened with confidence in our government than not, uh, which we can perhaps talk about. Not Blow me down, Peter. Well, let me explain very, very quickly, and then we can bounce off of it. But Greg Hunt uh, as the health minister and Christian Porter as the, as the attorney general. Now, there's a lot in terms of their policy scripts that I'm not necessarily a fan of. And in terms of Greg Hunt, I thought his behaviour around the toppling of Malcolm Turnbull was just despicable, to say the least, uh, with the duplicitous nature of some of what he did. But... If I had to pick two ministers inside the government from a sort of competence perspective, managerial competence, looking at how to respond to a crisis like this, Porter and Hunt would be right at the top of my list. Well, the other one who's got a key job, of course, is the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. We'll get to that a little bit later. But I was thinking about Hunt. And again, uh, I remember Greg Hunt when he was under Malcolm Turnbull. He was the Environment Minister. We're going back over a decade, and that was when he was a vociferous uh, advocate for a price on carbon. Uh, he was in the lead there of trying to convince, uh, you know, I suppose doubters, and, and there were many mm. within the coalition, about uh, supporting the uh, carbon uh, Pollution Reduction Scheme, which was the Rudd scheme back then. And then when that fell and uh, Turnbull fell, he turned on a dime and became part of, a, of, of opposing that process. So I've seen in him things which make him seem a little slippery to me. I, and, I, and I don't disagree with that. I, I, just, I just distinguish that from the managerialism of a crisis And I think like you're this. right. And I think yeah. you're right. Because one of the things, if you look at this, is that this government, for all its uh, many failings, for all its many, uh, you know, crash and burns, tossing out leaders and all the rest of it, they have been there for a long time. Mm. And Hunt has been a minister now for a long time. He understands where all the levers are. He understands how the media works. He understands how the public service interface works with government. And uh, he seems to be working pretty well on it. Uh, That's not to say perfectly. And I noticed that the New South Wales Health Minister uh, responded to complaints that GPs had, for example, that they couldn't get hold of masks. 
You know, so there was Greg Hunt at a press conference in, in Canberra saying, oh, we've got the stockpile of, you know, a million plus masks and all these other things for the medical experts, professionals who are going to be able to help us as this thing reaches out into the community. And the GPs are going down to Bunnings to try to find mm. masks to manage dust when you're sawing wood as a means to try to keep out this virus. And Brad Hazard, the New South Wales minister, saying rather tartly that uh, GPs, uh, don't fall under the states, unlike hospitals. They fall under the Commonwealth, and uh, plainly there was a complaint there. Uh, and there, and there are issues. But I, I, I guess for me, you know, in the in the context of the government and where I do have concerns, the the area where I have the least concerns, are someone like Christian Porter looking after the law and order side of where this might go, uh, and someone like. Greg Hunt looking after the health managerialism of where this might go. I've actually got more concerns, it's not an attack on Josh Frydenberg, but I've got more concerns about this government writ large when it comes to things like stimulus and economic response because they tend to have an ideological predisposition against it, so therefore they could be late to the party and therefore doing too little perhaps also too late. Uh, and I also have concerns about Christian Porter in an ideological sense when it comes to industrial relations, his other portfolio with how casual workers may casual or may workers. not be treated and yeah. all the rest of it. Okay? Well, and the, well, let's stop because I want to talk about the health issues. We've got plenty to talk about the economic mm. issues. But since you mentioned Christian Porter, there was what seemed to be, to my mind, and I only saw his reported comments, but a callous indifference to that huge sector of the workforce who are casually employed. Um, on the idea that there's this instruction going out, if you think you're crook, self-isolate. If you're working for a large corporation, you'll doubtless get your sick leave while you do it, or you might be able to work from home and not even have to tap your sick leave. But if you're a casual worker, you know, there is no sick leave. That's the whole point about being a casual worker. And his argument seemed to be that, oh, well, casual workers get paid more than people in regular employment, so therefore they'll have made their own arrangements. He has no idea <laughs> no, and, of and, the real world, if that's what he genuinely thinks. Absolutely. that's, the, And I don't think it is what he genuinely thinks. I but think why it's, say it? And well, this goes to – this goes – this goes to the point where you've just talked about their managerial skills, and, and mm. let's, let's, let's not argue with, with your assessment of that. But there is creeping. There is always just under the surface creeping an ideological bent, and that is that casual workers are somehow perceived to be less worthy of attention and protection at these times than others who are in, in employment. Well, and, and, and chiefly, that if they are being asked to follow the guidelines, and that is, to, you know, this, these are the people who make your coffee, the people who make the sandwich down at the sandwich bar, uh, all those casual workers that are out there, we know who they are. They're often migrants, they're often mums working part-time, they're often students, they're often people trying to get their own little businesses off the ground. They need a couple of days' work a week just to keep some cash flow uh, coming through. And yet to take the view that they are so well off that they will have made their own arrangements for a catastrophe and a pandemic because, of course, everyone has their own personal arrangement for a pandemic. To me, that is ideological and it's unworthy. Well, it's, it's, and the kindest assessment of it is that it is a, an unrealistic practical version of what is an ideological or, or at least ideal construct because, yes, in theory – Casual workers are supposed to get all sorts of loadings that cover them for the things that a full-time worker doesn't get. But we know in practice, and surely 
Christian Porter and the government writ large knows in practice that what actually happens in the real world is that people who are employed casually are part of the underemployed class often, people that would rather be full-time, would rather get all those benefits without the top-up for the few hours that they work, and they are underemployed. So they are working 5, 10, 15, maybe 25 hours a week, but they are not working the 40-hour week. They are therefore underemployed from where they would like to be, and they therefore don't have the financial resources, not just because of perhaps being low paid, but also because of being underemployed to be able to save, as the theoretical construct suggests casual workers could or should do, because they get loadings in lieu of things like sick leave and and, yeah. and holiday leave. And, and so the, it's, it, 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 yeah, it's, and it's the danger with that stupidity, sense. that lack of real world sense, is there is a health impact on that. Mm. Because unless you establish a structure which protects casual workers if they are going to take time off work, at least some, are inevitably going to go, well, well, it is just a sniffle. I can keep going. I know there's coronavirus, but I've had sniffles before. I'll keep going to work because I need the money. I simply need the money. And therefore, the other side of the response to a, to a pandemic or, or, you know, a global epidemic is that uh, you're trying to keep people safe. Part of it is self-isolate if you think you might have picked up this virus, and yet you've got a bunch of people economically you- Yep, and that is why uh, a role for government, I think, has to come into it here. It it goes into the same issue where I saw reports that, technically speaking, and the government confirmed this, technically speaking, businesses are not required to pay even their full-time employees on the suspicion of illness if they're not, in fact, ill to self-quarantine for 14 days. So even if you are full-time employed but are, for example, on the minimum wage or something like that and it's a financial hit to you and you don't have, uh, for example, the capacity to take holidays as annual leave, which a lot of people may not have. And you don't have the kind of job that can be done from home. Exactly. Then you may also find yourself getting docked unless the government steps in. And and, and I have a sympathy for businesses, don't get me wrong. So the argument here is about government intervention, isn't it? Because businesses who are already doing it tough with the coronavirus in the wake of the Mm. bushfires, you name it, often even big ones, but certainly small and medium ones, can hardly afford to cover what we know is the real world necessity to cover even the full-time worker taking the 14 days in, in self-quarantine, certainly the casual worker who's part of the underemployed class in this country. But you can't expect those individuals to wear the hit because they can't afford no, it. And to- to- as to- you say, the public health risks of them choosing, therefore, to work and spread the virus and all the long-term yeah. impacts, that brings us back to government, doesn't it? Does government it have to- an interventionist role here? And that's what a stimulus should be all about. And, and, but it's, and it's difficult for government. I'll, I'll go to the business issue because it does matter. There are all kinds of businesses who've got casual labor forces that are laying off that labor force because people are not behaving as they were even three or four weeks ago. And they're not turning up to certain things, to restaurants, to, you know, to events, to, to nightclubs, for, for heaven's sake. You know, a whole bunch of things that, that rely on, on casual employment. And so they will simply be put out of business yep. if they need to pay all their casual workers as if they're working when the business isn't there. As you say, it does come down to government and how serious government is in finding ways, uh, you know, Scott Morrison has said, you know, he's put his hand on his heart, he's put his little flag pin on his lapel and he says this is a Team Australia moment and it's time now for him to show it's a Team Australia moment, that he means it's a Team Australia moment and we'll see. Well, yeah, and I guess if it's a Team Australia moment, then he'll stay in Australia, he won't go holidaying in Hawaii. But put that to one side, <laughs> one of the issues here. Uh, for the government is that they're interested in stimulus spending 
because they're trying to keep the economy going to avoid a recession. Now, yes, individuals obviously benefit from that because it keeps unemployment down and all the rest of it, but they're also doing it, let's be frank about this, for their own political ends because presiding over a recession ain't a good thing for any government, even a Liberal government that gets the benefit of the doubt when it comes to economic management. But the stimulus spending is therefore about the economy. It's not about the individuals within the economy. And that's part of the problem here. They're not looking to give the money to people so that they can just survive, which is what, if you like, a, a social democratic party should do, or you would like to think uh, a government will do in a social liberal age. What they're looking to do is just to simply provide the kind of stimulus that gets spent so that the economy keeps churning along. Those are potentially two different points, and that's why it is a bit concerning when you hear rhetoric from ministers which falls back on theoretical constructs around yeah. things like casual employment and the ability, therefore, to, to get loading for things like sick leave. Because you, you make an excellent point. One of the problems when you're trying to stimulate in short order an economy, we saw this during the GFC, is how do you get the cash out there? And the most efficient way to do it is by pumping money out through people who already have a financial relationship with the government. They've already got bank accounts and, and the yep. way to do it is through, uh, it was through family uh, benefits schemes, but particularly through new starts, through pensions, through part pensions, uh, you just slug some extra money in there. In the knowledge, particularly as all the modelling shows and experience shows that the people who have less money are more likely to go out and spend pretty much immediately that money. Yep, so because the they have no choice. The stimulus has a real a real-time effect in the economy. So then I guess, um, as you say, that's about pumping the economy, not doing individuals. But seeing we have had, even since the GFC, a mass growth in the casual uh, employment in Australia, uh, that's going to leave a lot of people uh, struggling. And that's going to hurt. Yeah, because people need to remember, you know, think of it this way. The casualization of the Australian workforce is a, is a phenomena, particularly in the gig economy, where it's happening at, at an exponential rate. And things like, for example, Uber, uh, which has people of that ilk uh, employed, certainly not full-time, they're also double whammied on this because fewer people are going to be using those kind of services in a time where a virus pandemic is afoot as well. So not only are they potentially having to self-isolate and miss out on financials, they're also struggling in their businesses and their opportunities for employment because those sectors, the same goes with the casualization within the catering and tourism sectors, these are the areas that will be most hit by something like a pandemic where people decide to isolate for health reasons. So it's a real double whammy, Hugh, as far as how badly damaged they and as a result of them, the economy writ large could be. Meanwhile, the markets have fallen off a cliff. It's getting increasingly difficult to get an appointment with your GP or any medical professional. And uh, there's a lot to talk about in terms of exactly how the stimulus package might roll out and, and whether it'll be enough. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. In 35 years of Neighbours, we've seen it all. Or have we? Welcome to Ramsey Beat, a new 10 Speaks podcast celebrating 35 years of Australia's favourite soap. Find it wherever you subscribe to podcasts.
Welcome back. This is episode 38 of The Professor and the Hack, and we're, uh, we're mid-pandemic here, uh, PVO, The Professor and I. Can, so, can, can I just make a quick comment, Hugh? You can. And this is as much to relieve everyone in this room um, of, of health concerns. This is a very contagious virus. However, the estimates are that each person infected by it passes it on to about two, two and a half people. It is infectious, but it's not. A, it's not. You know, it's not like in the movies where you sit in the same room and you get it. Uh, it it's it's more difficult than that. You know, the, the the most common way that people get this is actually if a family member gets it, and then the whole family gets it, and then from that whole family, maybe the whole family infects one or two people outside the family, and then it rolls on. So it's actually all primarily about families looking after their own individual hygiene. And it's why I remember when I first heard this, it sounded so trite, but all the experts I've had a chance to talk to, uh, both on camera and off camera, have confirmed this. Things like carrying hand sanitizer with you. If where, you can find it. Wherever you go. You've got some. Quick. I've got some. Mug him. There's not much left in it. But uh, And washing your hands when you come inside the house. Being conscious of these things that sound so basic, everyone that I've talked to about this they re experts, not like us, health experts, they reiterate the significance of that because this isn't a case of you're in a room and somebody coughs and you're all going to get it. It's a case of there is a risk if you've been out and about in the community. If you don't then wash your hands at the end of it, you could get well, it. Not or even if you rub your eyes is the other th- risk. That's right. And, and to the mucous membranes of your face, your nose, your mouth, your eyes and all those other gorgeous things uh, – I have sort of slightly been through this before because I lived in Hong Kong just after the SARS epidemic. and That, of course, had a much higher death rate. It had a higher death rate, but it didn't last so long. But Mm. it had a similar transit. This is actually uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 that we've got is also a SARS, a severe acute respiratory syndrome. So fundamentally, they've got the same thing. And these are heavy droplet, as they call it, transmissions. So it's not aerosol, not very fine stuff that hangs in the air and you can catch it, you know, minutes after someone's left a room. You can walk in there Mm. and it's still hanging in space. So as they say, if you stay two meters away from someone and then wash your hands, uh, you are, you're, you're pretty you right. right. But, of yeah. course, that doesn't help in a family setting. But the other thing about it is, and this is where winter matters, why go, we're going into the winter series, mm. is that in summer the droplets land on surfaces and uh, they evaporate off quite quickly. So there's no medium there for the virus to sort of stay yep. around. In winter it's, it's colder, it doesn't evaporate off so so quickly and so the surfaces longer. have little bits that that remain and one of the most telling things and we might have mentioned this before was that the world health organization did a brilliant study of the entire life cycle of the sars epidemic back in 2002 2003 and uh, it, it reads like a thriller and, and one one element of it was a flight in which a carrier got on board a plane from memory he was going to vancouver and he went to um uh he got off the plane. He was very sick and people died as a consequence of being on that plane with him. But when they looked at the people who got infected on the plane, they weren't the ones sitting – well, they weren't just the ones sitting immediately around the sky. They looked at them and they were dotted all around the plane. and Passed through the air conditioning system, was it? It was the ones who'd gone to the toilet. The sick guy had gone to the toilet. He'd touched the handle as you needs must. He'd touched various things inside and he'd gone and sat down again. And other people had gone to the toilet, had opened those doors and and then touched their droplets, face or something. somehow yeah. rubbed their face and then found their way back to their seat and had got sick that way. And, and this is where I accept that what you say, uh, but it does go to issues about things like public transport, 
Um, you know, you think of being on a bus and pushing the button that says, I'll take the next stop. Now, that button's getting pushed by a great number of hands. Now, in between times, there's no hand-washing elements on a bus. If you're lucky enough to have hand sanitizer, it's almost completely sold out. You can be squirting away and rubbing, and that's a fine thing. Uh, but most people are not able to do that. Mm. What I noticed in Hong Kong after SARS, because people had really learnt their lesson, was they would touch lift buttons with their elbows, for example. Handshaking nice. was gone. People would go to toilets, and not only would they wash their hands, but they'd take the paper towel to open the door to leave with their hand in a paper towel and throw the paper towel outside. No point in washing your hands if the previous occupant of the toilet hasn't bothered uh, yeah. on the way out to wash his and it's on the door handle. So these kinds of elements actually matter. And uh, so, so this, you know, I don't want to get people paranoid, but that business of actually, particularly in public spaces, we're seeing, for example, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have just announced that they're cancelling uh, major rallies on the race of their lives to become president of the United States because the environment of having masses of people in one place um, is too great. The risk is too great to, to people. We've got to see this for the major sporting events that are coming. So all of these are issues that, um, that we're going to all have to get used to and, and try to deal with and show a little more rational response than the toilet paper uh, stampede. And that's before we even talk about the economic impacts. Let's talk about the economic mm. impacts because I saw the Reserve Bank Governor, um, Guy de Bell, has put out a speech and he uh, says, he states the obvious, I love these things, the conclusion is that the global economy will be materially weaker in the first quarter of 2020 and in the period ahead. So basically what he's saying is that things are going to be grim for some time. He also says that and I quote here, the estimate is approximate, but at this stage, we think the decline in services exports in the March quarter, I'll explain this, will amount to at least 10%, roughly evenly split between lower tourism and education. So what he's saying is that in the March quarter, in, the, in this three-month period, our education, foreign students coming to our universities in particular, and tourism will drop by at least 10%. That which Huge. seem reasonable, but is massive. And because they account for 5% of our total GDP, that, that's a half percent knockoff in GDP. Yep. What's Josh Frydenberg going to do? Well, he doesn't have to worry about his surplus anymore because it's dead buried and cremated. And that will hurt him in a way because of all the back in black. Where you know what was it? What was the famous well, line? I've, you love this I've, line. I've got back in black. I've, uh, yeah, I've, but but he also he's, and back on track. Yeah, yeah, and but the other line you had was, was we uh, we have brought the budget back into surplus next year. Oh, yeah, or that, some that, line Scott, like that. Scott where they managed to, to mangle the, uh, yeah, the we, tenses. So. We, we we did something in the future. Yeah. Now. Uh, yes. It was it was his use of the English language at its absolute best. So he's been Wayne Swand essentially. Oh. things tricking along, and then suddenly you get hit by something from overseas. And here's what bothers me. Okay, I and it's not quite analogous because Wayne Swan got hit by the GFC. The budget went in the red, and it was for the foreseeable future. And he overpromised the uptick that would follow yeah. the GFC, which never in fact followed. And there was baked in spending and there was lower growth post the GFC than the Ford estimates were predicting. And that's why he never delivered the surplus. Well, they kept, they kept with these, these heroic projections of future which growth. Never going to happen. No. Never going to happen. So, in a sense, that is worse than the government, albeit very slowly charting a six year course back to surplus albeit doubling the national debt on the way through without a GFC, we should add. But at least they were going to get there and then all of a sudden, bang, this hits and that's what costs them the surplus. And now 
that is at one level not as bad because there wasn't the same level of overpromising as Wayne Swan was doing post the GFC, but it's also a bit worse in a way because they've built up so much debt without a GFC equivalent and now all of a sudden having accumulated more debt than Labor accumulated during and after the GFC over a similar period in government, they've now been hit by something that may or may not be as bad as the GFC. The Prime Minister's trying to say it will be, we will see. But either way, they're now getting hit by that, having already accumulated as much debt as Labor did as a result of the GFC. So it will be interesting to see how they get judged in the years ahead. I still think, and some listeners who perhaps lean left will throw their arms up in frustration, don't do it if you're driving and listening, but... The problem is that the Liberal Party always seems to get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the economy over Labor, according to all the opinion polls and survey research. It suggests to me that how do they lose? If we fall into recession, they say, don't risk Labor. If we don't fall into recession, they say, how good are we? We save the country from a recession. And then they do almost the Labor trick where the debt doesn't matter because they saved us from recession. I suspect that's what they're likely to do because the stimulus spending, they get weekly mud maps. They can know where this is going and hopefully be ahead of the curve. I tell you what, though, Hugh, if they don't save us from recession and if we fall into one, even if they politically get away with that because they spin the line, don't risk Labor in a time of recession, which I think would work for them politically. It would have been worse under them. Oh, absolutely, because the only reason that this country goes into recession rather than avoids it is because they become sluggish in imposing the stimulus because they have an ideological opposition to it. We know that Scott Morrison was one of the people that was highly critical as a relatively junior Mm. MP of Kevin Rudd's stimulus spending. There is no excuse for a country like ours with the low debt even now with how much it's risen in the last 12 years not to be able to stimulate its way out of a recession. We should not hit a recession. No, but it, but it means going it, – it means heading heavily into the budget. It does, and which one, they have an ideological issue with. But the, that's, that's where you know, the old line is there's no crisis without an opportunity. And as you, I think you've just spelled it out there, that this is a way in which politically they can emerge out of it. The, the bushfires are forgotten. And uh, on the, the key issue of managing the economy, even in a recession, they will be able to say it would have been worse. I saw Michael Pascoe, the uh, venerable f- former uh, Nine uh, business editor, calculating that if there is what we've heard from Guy Bell from the Reserve Bank, that they expect a a minus 0.5% GDP in the March quarter, uh, just from those two sources of tourism and and education. So PASCO has calculated there'll be at least another drop, similar drop in the next in the next quarter, and says that that would require a minimum $20 billion to do the matching stimulus to uh, to essentially keep us on an even keel, to keep us where we are. And they're looking at doing half that. And they're looking to do half that. So his argument but is, is that they are here. not looking – his argument is, is that the government is not actually looking to protect us from a recession. They're looking to, to if they need to go into the black, to, to keep it a low, a low curve and, um, and then look to, hope – that by the time of the next election, they might have even corrected that and said we managed the blip. What do you think? Yeah, look, potentially. But I I tend to think that they would prefer to avoid the recession, but they do have a cost point when it comes to stimulus. So if it's too high, then they'll ride that out and argue that we're the best people to get out of the recession. They won't quite call it the recession we had to have. Uh, They'll let Keating's rhetoric sit where it sat in the early 90s. But 
uh, I could easily imagine them not being afraid of a technical recession because that is a bigger issue for Labor. Labor presides over a recession. They're at risk of getting thumped for it. Liberals do it. The argument is don't risk Labor. It's deeply inconsistent, uh, but I do think it's where a lot of people sit. Now, that can get them one election if things correct. I don't think it gets them two, though. Oh, I think they're only looking at one election. That's that's a full range. (laughs) But the other thing is, is that it's unlikely that we would be in recession. Come the election. Come the election. So therefore, whatever happens, they can say, yes, we had a recession. But look at what we've done since. But but we're not in recession now. We're back in growth. And, so and that's because of our steady hand on the tiller. And if we had to cop a bit of, uh, of a deficit, we never went anywhere near as deep as Labor would have done under the circumstances where the better people to get you out of any trouble. Which you can't disprove because you can't prove a negative. But it's, one but of it's the- not a reasonable argument. It's not an unreasonable argument. Uh, politically, in terms of oh. every politician who's serious, Graham Morris taught me this, the old one stage chief of staff to John Howard, and you know him very well. Um, he lost his job over their own version of um, travel entitlements rorts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we took the fall, I think, for that. But, uh, but he said, basically, the day after every election, his thinking was, where do I want to be the day before the next election? Yep. What do I need to have done to get to to be where I want to be on the on the day before the next election. And, and, you know, the general public doesn't think like that, but the hardheads do think like that. And they can say, we can wear a little re- recession uh, so long as we don't go too deeply in the black because they're thinking about where they will be and what arguments they will put the day before uh, the 2022 election. And, you know, another podcast prediction, I, I suspect that the coalition does get away with a recession, does get away with all the things that it perhaps shouldn't, certainly shouldn't in Labor's view. But just let me lay it out this way. This is, let me see if I understand this correctly. The government will benefit potentially from us no longer being in a recession come the next election because they're seen as the better economic managers. But this will be their track record. They will have taken over promising a surplus and never delivering it, most likely. They will have more than doubled national debt before any crisis hit. They will preside over record underemployment in the economy, sluggish wages growth, a potentially slow stimulus spend which results in a recession, sluggish growth, record low interest rates which are only a sign of economic weakness. Rates, the Reserve Bank cash rate was at 3% at the end of the GFC. It's now at 0.5%. How do you preside over monetary policy via the Reserve Bank having to fall so dramatically when we are not in a crisis, which we now appear to be ebbing towards. That will be their economic track record. Now, sorry, blow me down, but that is a crap record. Now, I'm not necessarily saying Labor would be able to do it any better. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot then. Since 2007, Mm -hmm. when Rudd took over the end of the Howard and Costello years, who has been the better economic manager? They have been, and I know that Who's d- they? D- you, both sides, they have been as bad as each other, in my view. I give Rudd's government credit for lifting us out of recession through the GFC with a solid stimulus spend. I attack them for then baking too much of that spending post the need for it into the economy. And I slug both sides for failing to embrace the kind of economic reform that the nation needs in light of... Howard having done so with things like the GST, and that's just the start of it, some of his IR reforms are important as well, and certainly the Hawke-Keating years with their microeconomic reforms. We hit an era of needing federation and tax reform during the life cycle of both the Rudd and the Abbott et al. governments, 
and they both failed the Australian people miserably. We are now what Donald Horn once said we are. We are now a country led by mediocre politicians who don't have the guts, the courage, the capacity, or quite frankly, even the know-how, I think, in some respects, to get done the kind of economic reform that Keating, Hawke, and to his credit, Howard, did, which put us where we were able to have such mediocre, hopeless politicians stuff things up for over a decade, and we're still okay as a nation. A decade on from now, though, if the same slugs run the joint in the same sluggish way, we won't be okay. Well, you might be carrying all kinds of viruses, PVO, but it's good to see you on form. <laughs> and we're out of time. We'll leave it there. Keep washing those hands, dude, and we'll, uh, we'll see you in a week. We won't shake hands at the end of this podcast. We won't. We'll do that little elbow thing. We'll do that. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.